for starters, uh, there is certainly authority for the proposition we were arguing in front of the court, which is that British Columbia has the ability to regulate uh, harmful substances uh, brought into our province, including through uh, railways or interprovincial pipelines. Uh, the court disagreed with us. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Welcome to another podcast. That's the voice of Attorney General David Eby after the government suffered a setback this week in its fight against the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. Rob, what happened with this court case here? Yeah, we were all waiting for this one. This is the government, uh, B.C., using every tool in that toolbox, as they say, basically. It came up with this tool. They were going to design a new law to make permits mandatory if you wanted to increase your shipment of oil into B.C. Now, whether or not that was legal was the question that the government put to the Court of Appeal. They said, we're thinking of doing this. Will you analyze our proposed legislation? Tell us if we have the power. Because in theory, the power for regulating pipelines is a federal thing. It travels across borders and Ottawa controls that. So B.C. put this to the Court of Appeal. They got the uh, smack laid down on them, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. It was a 5 nothing decision against uh, BC uh, having the power to do this. They said it was unconstitutional because uh, the issue is that this is a federal project that should be, um, you know, designed and regulated for the interests of the country as a whole was the line from the Court of Appeal. And uh, basically that the province doesn't have the power to create this permitting system uh, as they wanted to do. So a bit of a setback for the yeah. B.C. government, but they were pretty quick on the rebound saying uh, they want to take this to the Supreme Court of Canada. I don't know if you found that surprising at all, Smitty. Or- well, did I did I predict on an earlier podcast that they would lose this case? I don't know. We don't record these. They're just live. <laughs> and if you miss them, they're gone. So Because if I didn't, I should have, <laughs> because I think this thing was doomed. I, I just thought that this whole court reference that Horgan cooked up here in EB to ask the courts whether they have any provincial jurisdiction over what goes into a pipeline coming from another province, I thought it was just DOA. That was just going to be dead on arrival. And I was not surprised at all to see this thing go down to defeat, like you said, in a 5 nothing unanimous ruling by the BC Court of Appeal, which is the highest court in BC. So I don't think many people were surprised that the government lost on that. But like you said, it was kind of like Horgan backing up a campaign promise in which he said, we'll use every tool in the toolbox to fight this pipeline. And I guess this was one of the tools in the toolbox. Do we have any authority to stop what they put in in the pipeline? And they got smacked down, which I think, you know, probably a first year law student could have told you that this was pretty clear federal jurisdiction and they were going to lose. Yeah. You know, and I... You know, they'll lose at the Supreme Court of Canada, too. Although, in some ways, I'll be surprised if the Supreme Court of Canada even agrees to hear the case. Well, I think the province has the ability to to make them hear it after the referendum. Okay. I'm not sure, but um, I imagine it'll get there anyways. But I think the best line came from Al- former Alberta Premier Rachel Notley, who's now the leader of uh, the opposition in Alberta, where she said, it turns out that BC's toolbox was more Fisher-Price than DeWalt. <laughs> and, and Alberta's oil sands have helped build this country, and today is a good day for people with real toolboxes across all of Canada. Okay, so for people who are not home, a home handyman like you, I know you're real handy fixing up homes and stuff. DeWalt is what a very popular yeah. ho- line of high quality tools. And Fisher Price is made out of plastic, <laughs> yeah, with a little okay. bell on it. So that's yeah. a pretty good line. Yeah, it's not a bad line. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, there's a lot of symbolic importance for the BC government to fight this fight. Obviously, they're trying to appeal to 
the environmentalists that make up part of their coalition. They are trying to keep the Greens happy. This is part of the CASA agreement, the power sharing agreement with the BC Greens. You got to fight the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion. So we all kind of feel like maybe Horgan wouldn't be too unhappy at this point if, uh, you know, the, the pipeline expansion went ahead as long as he can be seen to have done everything he could to oppose it. And that's kind of, I think, why they're going to the Supreme Court of Canada. Let's hear David Eby, the Attorney General, just a bit on how he kind of phrases why they have to go to the to the Supreme Court and, and why that's sort of necessary. We believe that we have the right uh, and the authority constitutionally, except where the federal parliament says we don't, to regulate harmful substances that are brought into British Columbia however they get here. Now, the Court of Appeal has said that it is their opinion that where our regulations uh, specifically impact products brought in through an interprovincial pipeline, uh, that that uh, proposition is not the case. Uh, we think this is something that could be clarified by the Supreme Court of Canada. So this is one of these classic ones now, Smitty, where you get a court decision and you have politicians say, well, the Court of Appeal said it's their opinion. And it, it's now a, we need another it's opinion. A, it's another opinion. You know, okay. It used to be the courts were just the, the arbiters of the law. And yeah. now it's like, well, no, no, that's just one court's opinion. So we're well, going to have to take it to another court. I think you outlined the the political intricacies of this thing. Because I, I think what's really going on here is Horgan has to appease the interests in his own party and the environmental wing of the NDP who are opposed to this pipeline, including some of his key cabinet ministers. So we had to at least be seen to be going to the wall to try and stop it. And this is what this court case was about. Does he really want to stop it? Now we get into the question of what's really going through Horgan's mind. If you could do a Vulcan mind meld with him and figure out what he's actually thinking. I I think that you're right. I think he's probably thinking, you know what, I hope this thing is over now and that at least I tried to stop this pipeline. Guess what? I couldn't do it because the courts wouldn't let me do it. And now, oh, boo-hoo, the pipeline has to go ahead now and there's nothing I can do about it. I think he just wants to, to wash his hands of this whole pipeline thing because the politics of it are very, very tricky for him, right? Is that what's going on here? I mean, is it just a lot of political posturing on this thing? I yeah, think that's what it, is. it is. It is. Well, there's lots of politics everywhere on the pipeline. You yeah. know, the federal election doesn't help with uh, Ottawa's position having to buy this pipeline and now... We're getting ready to see if Ottawa is going to approve their own pipeline, which, you know, spoiler alert, they are going to approve their own pipeline. When? When are they, they going to do the that? They bought the thing. Later in June, they have to decide, okay. uh, you know, it's, we're going to be back into this kind of same position of, um, you know, one level of government fighting with another level of government. It was very interesting. There was a press conference at the legislature this week from a uh, First Nations group that is hoping to bid and purchase a 51% share of the Trans Mountain expansion pipeline from Ottawa. Oh, yeah. One of about half a dozen First Nations groups in various stages of thinking or are actively kind of pursuing this. Um, but this is one of the uh, this project reconciliation is the name of it. And they're trying to go out and find a, a few billion dollars in funding, whether through bonds or a bank. And if a First Nation group was able to uh, whether from BC or Alberta or Saskatchewan or a mixture of all three provinces by a, a controlling stake in the pipeline, the dynamics of this thing change again because now yeah. you have a First Nations led yeah. pipeline, uh, yeah. you know, with some backing from the federal government. And it's a lot harder for some opponents to say, well, you know, everyone opposes this when in fact it's not as clear as, as that. So the dynamic of this could change as well as we move forward to actually maybe even building this thing in the months ahead. 
Okay. It's a It'll be a key issue in the fall election and, and some people have thought would Trudeau maybe want to avoid this issue because it's tricky politics for him too and maybe that's why the the federal cabinet's dragging its heels a little bit on getting the project built and getting it moving. But I think what Trudeau will do is go all in on this pipeline and campaign in the fall saying Look, I, I'm the guy who's trying to protect the environment with my federal carbon tax, but I'm also not blind to the economy and the needs of Alberta, and we're going to build this pipeline and try to show that he's sort of on both sides of it. So I, I, I think what you'll see Trudeau do is approve this pipeline and then defend it on the campaign trail in the fall. Yeah, against a conservative party that definitely wants to build it and an NDP that's opposed to it, and right. the liberals try to skate down that middle ground. I think but so. There's a lot of baggage that Justin Trudeau is carrying into the next election, which leads us to the next topic, which is once again... Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould announcing, and you can talk a bit about this, Smitty, that she will run again in the next uh, federal election, which is this fall, and uh, she's going to run as an independent. Uh, Let's hear her off the top just kind of say some of the reasons why that she is, in fact, doing this. Rising to these challenges requires Ottawa to operate more openly and transparently in the spirit of nonpartisanship with increased cooperation. That is what I am now, more than ever, as an independent committed to advocating. As an independent, I will be truly free to take the guidance of the citizens of Vancouver Granville and to represent you. I will not have to try and convince myself that just because the way it has always been done means that it must continue to be done that way. Okay, I think this is a disappointing announcement for the Green Party because Elizabeth May, who's gotten pretty pally with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Wilson-Raybould went to her wedding, and there is a lot of talk about how maybe they would do a team-up, and that Wilson-Raybould and also Jane Philpott, the other Liberal MP who stepped aside in this whole SNC-Lavalin saga, that maybe both of them would... uh, Cross the floor and join the federal Green Party. And the Green Party been on a roll here. They won that Nanaimo by-election. They're looking not bad in the polls. Elizabeth May, the federal leader, seems pretty popular. So imagine if they had persuaded these two MPs to come over to their side. This would have been a wonderful, big accomplishment for Elizabeth May. It didn't work out for her. And the Greens, are, I mean, they're left in a bizarre position now because federal leader Elizabeth May has said, <laughs> that she's going to run candidates basically against uh, Phil Pot and Wilson Raybould, but uh, you know it's kind of candidates, but you know not really going to win is is the insinuation there. And she also said she would have stepped down as leader of the Green yeah, Party, offered- the federal Green Party, if either uh, <laughs> Wilson Raybould or Phil Pot wanted to join and become the leader. So it's going to be very difficult know. for the Greens in those two ridings in the election to say vote for us for the candidate that even our leader doesn't really think is going to win and a leader who would have stepped aside for one of the other people that you're not going to vote for. <laughs> That's a horrible position for the Greens to be in. If anyone comes out of this looking ridiculous, um, you know, first it's Justin Trudeau, obviously, and, and, and what he's been uh, accused of and the, this, the criticism that he has faced over the months because of this SNC-Lavalin scandal. But now at the end, the Greens somehow managed to have uh, self-inflicted a wound uh, in this, and that's not good for them either. Although in the last election, in the riding of uh, that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is in in Vancouver-Granville, the Greens only got like 3% of the popular vote anyway. So that may have something to do with why 
she took a look at the greens and decided that was probably nothing nothing in her favor there. The greens get more of that than she does. Talk about laying it on thick, though, when she was trying to convince Wilson Raybould to come over to the greens. She actually said to her, do you want to be the leader of the party? Like, I don't think I've ever heard a federal leader or a provincial leader of any party, for that matter, they're trying to woo someone to come over to the party and they're offering to step aside and you can be the leader if you want. Like, wow. I mean, that's talk about rolling out the red carpet, but it still wasn't enough for these two MPs to decide to go over to the Green Party. So I wonder what's going on in, in their minds, uh, what you think, Rob, because it, I think what maybe is in the back of their minds, Wilson Raybould and Jane Philpot too, is I think they're wondering is maybe down the road they go back to the Liberal Party mm-hmm. and... This makes it easier as an independent. Like if you switch to another party and then announce now you're switching back to another to your original party again, doesn't that doesn't look great. But if you're going to sit as an independent, I think it makes it a little easier to go back later to yeah. the Liberal Party. Maybe the, that's what they got in the back of their minds. The Liberal Party not led by Justin Trudeau. Well, yeah, would maybe be, would after be Trudeau's gone, like if Trudeau loses badly this election in the fall and he resigns, then maybe they're thinking we'd go back to the Liberals. It's going to be tough, though. We haven't had an independent MP elected since 2008. Yeah. You know, Jody Wilson-Raybould got 44% of the vote uh, in her riding. And the question is going to be, is that because of her or is that because of Trudeau-mania? And there's no doubt that she's very popular and has been a good MP. But uh, independents have a heck of a time. They have all sorts of fundraising problems, whereas parties are able to to fundraise uh, during the year. Independents are stuck without that party apparatus. They can't take money the same way. They're kind of limited to the campaign period, so they're at a disadvantage. There's all sorts of problems being an independent. And not only is it that you're on your own, but it's the momentum that's built up by the parties and their platforms in a campaign. You can't ride. And so you're kind of stuck there. And it's will be a very interesting test for voters. Yeah. Do you want to elect an MP, again, who stood up to the party apparatus, who's talking about doing things differently, who's talking about a better way of doing politics? Or are you just going to go back to one of the parties because you like the glitz and the glamour and the platform and the leader and the idea in your mind that you've always voted one party or another and you like that brand loyalty? It'll be yeah. a fascinating kind of uh, analysis of voters in this writing. It will. And I think maybe the happiest person of all out of all of this is maybe Andrew Scheer, the leader of the conservative party, who might see a path to winning these two ridings, which maybe didn't have a, much of a shot at before. Because if you think about... Wilson Raybould and Philpot both running as independents, maybe peeling off a lot of liberal votes, but the liberals still run a candidate. Does that split the vote and allow the conservatives to sneak up the middle? Like I think that's possible in Vancouver Granville. I think I think Wilson Raybould can win that riding as an independent. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating federal election. Uh, it's the last week of the legislature session session here in BC. We talked uh, last week, Smitty, about the old. Uh, a spending scandal here and the McLaughlin report, the former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada brought in to sort out all the problems. You did a great column on the costs of all these inquiries, which I encourage you well, to check out. <laughs> so I did a column on this. You're, you're welcome to have a read of it on the Vancouver Sun. I just wanted to point out, we talked about this uh, last podcast and I yeah. kind of split your and our discussion into a, a bit of a column where I, I did find out how much this uh, McLaughlin report cost and it was 200 and nineteen thousand uh, dollars, essentially, and you can break that down: one hundred and ten grand for her fees and support and other things like that. Now, remember, in the McLaughlin report, the actual uh, money that was found to have been misspent 
that was part of this misconduct by the clerk, Craig James, was around $275,000. So, and that was for things like, you know, two grand for a couple suits and two grand for luggage, a retirement benefit package of $257,000, the $13,000 wood splitter, clearly inappropriate expenses. They're, right. they're named as inappropriate in the McLaughlin report. Craig James, the clerk, has resigned, uh, retired. Well, he would have been fired. So he retired yeah. before he was fired. He jumped before he could be pushed. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And just so I just floated, like we said last week, this idea of okay, start at $219,000. That's yeah. where McLaughlin is. Let's add in the price for Wally Opal, the former attorney general that Daryl Plekis. How much did he get paid? We don't know. We had the, yeah. the Daryl Plekis hired as the legal advice for a few months. We have eight months of legal advice from another lawyer for Daryl Plekis. We have Marcia McNeil, one of the best labor lawyers in the province, hired by the MLAs and the Lampsey Committee, the all-party committee, to give legal advice. We have a third-party workplace review. We have the RCMP investigating. We have two private lawyers who are special prosecutors billing full rates for special prosecutors. $62,000 in extra legal spending is in the budget just for this year for the legislature. That's extra. And then we have what could potentially be depending on how this plays out, the mother of all lawsuits by Sergeant-at-Arms <laughs> Gary Lenz, who was yeah. found to have done nothing wrong in the McLaughlin report, but is still under investigation from the RCMP. So we don't know exactly how it will play this out. This thing's going to cost a fortune. He, if he doesn't get his job back and he is not charged and he's found to have done nothing wrong, he is going to sue the pants off the legislative or they, assembly. Or they settle with him. Well, even if like, they settle I, with him. I, I bet you there's uh, – here's what I think will happen here. I think he'll beat the rap on the, investi- on the investigation by the cops – just because you just he was just cleared by McLaughlin, so I think he's going to walk. And then I thought he said a very smart thing when he was cleared by McLaughlin. He said he wants his job back. Uh, you know, if I was his lawyer, I would have said that would have been a perfect thing for you to say. You want your job back? Well, I don't think he's going to get his job back because you know there's too much bad blood around yeah. the building. Well, d- d- so they'll yeah. have to buy him out. I mean, they'll have to give him some kind of settlement. And I bet you we never find out how much it costs. And he's suspended with pay right now as well. Yeah. So we'll be paying him twice essentially for. That's you know, more money on the tax For running the guy's step. reputation into the ground. And then, of course, he's going to be entitled to something. This right. is assuming that he doesn't get charged with anything. Well, that's we don't know what be- the RCMP investigation is. That's so right. At some point, I just floating this idea in the column. And I think it's p- worth also repeating what you said last week, which is that Speaker Daryl Plekis deserves praise for coming in here as an outsider, taking a look at this and saying, well, some of this stuff is not appropriate. And he stuck with that. And even as his critics piled up and said, what are you doing? He yeah. stuck to his guns. Yeah. And he has, in a way, um, you know, improved the legislature by causing everyone to look at the policies and the loopholes and the things that weren't done properly to keep track of spending. And going forward, we're not going to have, hopefully, those problems, although we've heard this before in the past. On the other hand, the question is, and from the McLaughlin report, did he handle this the right way Did by focusing on this quasi-police investigation rather than doing what a normal manager would do and stopping the employee at the time and saying, I'm not happy with this. This is inappropriate. I want this expense repaid or I want the policy changed and we're going to stop it at this point. He let it go on for a year, approving these expenses so he could do his undercover report. And now exposing taxpayers even more expenses now. The liability. You know, obviously I think it could have been handled better. Yeah. But I think there is a, a point where we're going to have to discuss as you put it last week, is the cure worse than the ailment? Are we going to spend millions of dollars settling this lawsuit, ruining maybe one guy's life, depending on how this all works out, his reputation and his career, um, costing 
us lots of money in lawyers yeah. um, for something that could have been done differently. And yes, I think the McLaughlin report was worth the money. And I think probably the legislature is going to be in a better place when this all ends with, yeah. in terms of our policies and stuff. But it doesn't – the ends don't justify the means. And sometimes I kind of wonder if the path we're on is actually worse for taxpayers than it could have been. I think those are all awesome points and I encourage people to check out the column you wrote on it. It's 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 really uh it's really persuasive that maybe this is kind of like killing a flea with a sledgehammer, you know, it's going to cost a lot of money for taxpayers in the end. But I think one thing people got to keep in mind is if if this thing is actually cleaned up and there's already been a, some cleanup effort to stop this waste from happening again, then I think there's maybe an opportunity cost or something we could factor in that... A future if, cost. A future cost. Like yeah. if we can prevent this from happening again, that's a lot of savings unrealized, you know, going down the road in the future that won't be piled on taxpayers. Yep. So certainly though, this thing has been a real mess and it's been real expensive for taxpayers. Plekis, he's like the bull in the proverbial China shop, right? Like he busted up the China shop for sure. But maybe that's the only way you could fi- fix the thing. Like if you go back to, you remember that uh, the former Auditor General uh, Doyle? John Doyle. John yep. Doyle, the guy from Aussie. He he once sounded the alarm on some of this spending, including that inappropriate uh, retirement payment that Craig James got. Right. And nothing changed, you know. So, I mean, he was going through the proper channels and the proper rules and trying to bell the cat on this thing and, and clean it up. And it didn't get cleaned up. It just kept going on. So I think maybe you needed a, the bull in the china shop to come in and wreck the place. No, it's a, and, and that's really, I think, at least we have a good sense now of the pros and the cons and the plus and the minuses of what has happened here. We have a much better sense than we did eight months ago when we were both sitting here twiddling our thumbs. No clue whatsoever what the hell had happened here. We didn't know why anyone had been marched out. We didn't know what was going on. Now we're getting not only a a really good outside independent look at it by a a former chief justice, but we're getting the cost of these reports. And one day we'll sit down and it'll be tallied up and we'll figure out if it was was worth it. it. But at least we'll know. At least we'll know. And that, I think, is the end of the day good for taxpayers is to have an idea. So that, you know, kind of is one of the issues as we hit to the end of the the session. But it was a busy legislative session, Smitty. Uh, It was a one of those spring sessions where you have a budget and a throne speech and you go all the way through estimates and you come out. I counted 32 bills. Wow. Nothing, nothing what you would call outrageous, you know, and I think that's a key, as we pointed out in past podcasts, to the NDP government being more moderate. There's no crazy, um, you know, haymaker bills in here. There's a couple that have caused some concerns, but nothing, um, you know, outrageous. And there's a few in there that are very popular. Um, banning ticket scalping bots is one that you and I talked about. There's anti-slap legislation, so frivolous lawsuits, you know, designed to silence people. There's a ban on contract flipping in seniors' homes, which was an outrageous practice, causing, you know, people to lose their jobs as caregivers and then rehired for lower wages. Um, electric vehicle rules by 2040, you have to have zero emission vehicles, which is a very uh, kind of bold, uh, ambitious plan by the government here. And then you had the, some controversial stuff, the agricultural land reserve bill that removes the word person from the groups that are eligible to apply to have land removed from the ALR. So people can't do it anymore. It's caused a bit of a dust-up. You have um, a beneficial ownership database that the government's going to create, which is a big one that's going to bust open all those shell companies and numbered companies that own property in BC, but you don't know who actually owns them. It's part of the cleaning up the money laundering. Yep. You have a forest bill that's going to fiddle with the way tenures, you know, the right to to harvest crown land is 
is reallocated by government when companies change hands, which has infuriated the forest industry. And you have a labor relations code change that, um, you know, forbids children from working at the age of 12, as surprisingly, apparently they had been doing in BC. And that was a really, the labor bill was an interesting bill because this is one where the, we talked in the past about how the Greens forced the NDP to moderate away from the NDP's desire to give the unions a really cushy bill. Uh, go back to the idea of card check, which was an easier way to certify a union right. than secret ballot. And also, right. in the last week, the Greens forcibly amended that labor code bill in the House with the Liberals, and they got rid of one of the special provisions for the construction industry. It's super complicated, but basically, um, the unions aren't able to raid the construction industry uh, unions every year. It's only every three years. So they've changed mm. that provision in the bill. The NDP didn't like it. Labor Minister Harry Bain stood up in the House. He pleaded with Weaver, don't do this. This is not what the, what the industry wants. This is not good. Weaver stuck to his guns and the Liberals and the NDP, the Liberals and the Greens amended the bill and off it went. So it was a, that is a, a very interesting, it's the second time, you know, the Greens have forced the NDP to change their labor policies and kind of an interesting example of the two year mark, the halfway point of this government, how Things don't always go in the NDP's favor in this House. Most of the time, their moderate agenda sails through, but sometimes uh, the Greens uh, are persistent in what they want, and they actually cause change. That's a re- really good rundown of the of the session, which I think went pretty well for the government. And if you take a look at some of the opinion polls, I mean, do you care about polls? I mean, are, I mean, I'm always I always look at these polls, and some people trash them and say. You shouldn't even pay any attention to them, but anytime I, care I see about a them new the poll, same way I read those junk magazines in the grocery store or lineup, where it's like, "Oh my <laughs> God, so and so is pregnant," and you don't really want to read it, but you read it anyways. As you, you, pass. Re- you read it anyway. Yeah. I read them anyway, and let's take a look at this poll for fun, okay? So this just came out from Research Co., which is run by uh, Mario Canseco, one of the more well-known pollsters uh, in BC. And if I can find it on my computer screen, okay, here it is. This is great news for Horgan. The NDP in first, 39%. Basically the same as they got in the election two years ago. So they're right in the same ballpark. Liberals, 30%. So down 10 points from the election. And in second place behind the NDP by nine points, if you buy this. Green Party, 21%, which is a good number for them, for sure. And the BC Conservative Party, yes, there is one. Yes, they do have a leader. 9%, which might be a little troubling for uh, Wilkinson and the Liberals, if a, if the Conservative Party somehow even got in a little minor role. Now, some caveats on this. Like you said, there's a federal election coming up in the fall. Some people might answer this poll and be confused about is the, when they say, yeah, I support the B.C. Conservative Party. Are they actually thinking they're talking about Andrew Scheer and a federal Conservative Party? I mean, I think there's lots of potential for mix up. But anyway, the point is on this poll, this is good news for the NDP. This government's doing pretty well. I think Horgan is overperforming from what people anticipated. He's he's walking that moderate path like you described, and it appears to be paying off for him here in, in terms of the public support holding up. And I think we often talk about honeymoon periods, and I think yeah. what the NDP has successfully managed to do is they've sort of stretched their honeymoon period because they continue to um, state what people dislike in a very obvious way, and then at least promise to try and address it. And a, an example of this was um, something in the throne speech that the government said they were going to try and address cell phone bills. 
They said that, look, there's an affordability problem. People pay a lot of money on their cell phone bills. It hurts ordinary families. We got to get into this and figure out what we can do. Oh, that now, sounds great. It sounds great. Right? At the time, we were like, whoa, it's really good. But then you stop and you think about it and you think, well, hang on. Cell phone bills are and cell phone jurisdiction is federal. It's oh, not yeah. provincial. So what yeah. can the federal, what can the provincial government do? No, 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 said the BC government. We're going to get into this. And then, of course, this week we find that what they've actually announced is a public consultation on, oh, another on one. cell phone bills where you're invited to write in and tell people what you think about the amount you're paying for your cell phones. And then <laughs> the government will use that to, to advocate to Ottawa for some changes. Now, at the first blush, that sounds like an absolutely ludicrous and, and lame uh, policy like that's just that's lame. I mean, even by it's the not, co- it's federal jurisdiction, right? Even by the consultation standards, that's lame. But yeah. I think beneath that is the the political genius of just the passing reference to it. It catches the public's mind. You know, yeah. a lot of people don't pay attention to the details here, but they'll hear a little passing reference to, "Well, it's, it's government's doing something about my cell phone bill." Oh, oh great! Uh, yeah, oh, that sounds really good. So I think the NDP continues to do things like that on on ticket scalping bots. And on just every every now and again, they, they populate the that the public mind with a little reminder that they're listening to what pisses people off. Now, whether <laughs> they can solve it is a is a legitimate question. But two years into the mandate, they haven't had to do any of that yet. They're still raising questions and saying, "I hear you over there. I hear you're mad, and I'm going to take this up." And so it, they've ex- extended their honeymoon to this extraordinary length. And at some point, it'll come crashing home and people will say, well, what have you actually done? But I'm still amazed. <laughs> My at, cell phone bill is still killing me. I what know, have I'm, you done? I'm still amazed at how long they've stretched it out for. And I guess it yeah. speaks to the genius of the last provincial election campaign, which called, you know, the housing prices out, which called the child care prices out, which promised, told people at least um, that they were listening. And the flip side of that, though, as you and I have been talking about in recent weeks, is gas prices. You yeah. can't tell people you're listening to how much their wallets hurt. And then ignore them on on another issue, and that that's the Achilles' heel on gas prices is they they're unwilling to at least acknowledge that problem. And so, you know, I still think they're in a great position, but I yeah. wonder how much longer they can get away with these. Great well, games. I think they very strategically picked some cost pressure points that are very top of mind for people, or that people notice and and feel particularly acutely. One of them is gas prices, right? Everybody hates going to fill up their car and they're going like, oh man, this is the most I've ever paid for gas. This sucks. Well, Horgan has announced a gas price review or inquiry, right? By the BC Utilities Commission. Can he really do anything about gas prices? Probably not, but he's doing something. So he's responding to it. Another one is cell phone bill. Does anyone like paying their cell phone bill? Everybody hates that. So he's doing something about that. Ticket bots, like you mentioned, you know, you go to buy a concert ticket and you got to pay inflated prices on StubHub or whatever. It's the only place you can get a ticket. Everybody hates getting burned on that. So he's very cleverly kind of selected those those cost pressure points that really bug people the most and appears to be doing something to respond to it. Now, I guess the question is, like you said, well, what happens at the end of the day? Can they actually do anything about this? Like, I don't think they can do anything about cell phone bills. And Farnworth himself said that yeah. more or less today. He's the Solicitor General announced this review. He said, look, there's no government can reduce your cell phone bill directly, right? This is federal jurisdiction, first of all. But he did point out that BC does have jurisdiction over consumer protection. That's provincial provincial area of jurisdiction. So maybe they can do something like on that. So they'll come back and say, well, we're going to pass a provincial law that requires greater transparency on your bill or, you know, force cell phone companies to 
be more clear on their data charges and that kind of thing, or their roaming fees, these ones that really burn people on their bills. And if the government can convince them, the, the public that they've done something productive on that, maybe it helps them. Yeah, I think they're a, a beneficiary. The, the NDP is a beneficiary of their own clever strategy at this point and a little bit of luck. You know, when you expand that issue of, of uh, identifying public anger and acting on it into the housing market, you end up with a different result of that equation. Because I think the NDP were very lucky in that their moves on the housing market coincided with the echo of the federal uh, moves on the housing market, the federal mortgage stress test, which I think really cooled the market. BC's speculation tax, its foreign buyers tax, probably would not have done that on its own. But they entered at just the right time so that they kind of rode Ottawa's wave. And now you see the housing market cooling and you see prices coming down and the NDP are taking credit for that. And I guess they're in the right place at the right time to do that. And it looks like they're doing something. The NDP's problem there is they don't control that runaway freight train. And at some point, although it looks great now, the ride is really smooth. At some point, when they want to pull the e-brake, they're going to discover that they don't have control of this thing at all. And so for now, everything seems great. And you got to give the NDP credit for where they're at. And they're very popular. And they look like they're doing stuff. I don't know in a couple of years if we'll be saying the same thing. Yeah, no, it all, it's always going to get closer. And, and what about, just to finish up, what about Wilkinson and the Liberals? Do you think they should be worried about a poll that shows them nine points back of the NDP? Well, you know, nobody knows who Andrew Wilkinson is at yeah. this point. And that's, He's still sort of fine in his way. Yeah. I, I, the Liberals, you know, it, the election in British Columbia is such a weird uh, electoral map that when we've talked about scandals in the past, like two ridings in Maple Ridge could change the entire election. One riding in Courtney Comox, you know, the, it, it, in some ways the election is going to be about a, you know, a few key ridings and just yeah. duking it out in those ridings in the lower mainland. And it, and it is going to be about a larger, um, you know, campaign because there are a lot of ridings in this province that just seem locked into place. Did you, did you, no- liberal. Did you notice that they put up Bob Deeth, who's a, uh, an NDP MLA? As one of the front guys on this cell phone review. Yeah, he's a little and, magic rubbed off on him for the cell phone review. Yeah, he's Maple Ridge. Yeah. Those ridings you just mentioned, those critical swing ridings that they're, they, the NDP need to win in order to stay in power. Another one is the North Shore, that North Vancouver riding where uh, Bowen Bo Ma, Ma. Yep. Uh, knocked off a, a liberal cabinet minister there last time. Boy, they really are desperate to keep that seat. And then all of a sudden they're talking about, oh, maybe we'll put a sky train into North Van, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like all of a sudden these MLAs who are kind of backbenchers and not really known, all of, I think if they're in a close riding, they might start to get gain more prominence from the government. Yeah, it's an interesting time. Uh, we're going to be back next week. Uh we might, um, you know, switch some formats up, take some questions, bring on some guests oh, in the, the summer yeah. months, you know, uh, when the legislature is out of session. We're happy to hear your feedback. Uh, both of us are on Twitter. Uh, you can reach us there or just uh, search for us on the Vancouver Sun and the province websites. We're happy to chat with you. Thanks for listening so much. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and uh, we will talk to you next week. Talk to you then.